James Murray Mason was a Virginian. As a former member of the United States Senate, he once served as chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. His credentials made him a natural selection for a diplomatic mission to London as a representative for the Confederate States of America. Then there was John Slidell, a native New Yorker, who moved to Louisiana, where, as a young man, he embraced the French language and culture. He, too, was perfect for his assignment to Paris, to the court of Napoleon III. In November of 1861, they made their way on a mission which, if successful, would create a tipping point that would have profound consequences for the American Civil War. Then, an event in the Bahama Channel abruptly interrupted their journey. Found on a British vessel, they were captured in international waters by a U.S. armed sloop, and because of that, the two came the closest to accomplishing their designated mission long before they ever arrived. This is their story and the incredible ramifications of their capture. This is the story of the Trent Affair. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Before we relate the events of the Trent Affair, it would be most proper to explore United States and Confederate diplomacy as it existed when the Civil War was in its infancy. And to do that, we need to take a look at Europe, which in 1861 was quite different from today. Yes, geographically speaking, Spain, France, Great Britain, and Russia would be recognizable. But elsewhere, there was no united Germany. Italy was trying to unify, and Central Europe was under the Austrian Habsburgs. Up to 1860-61, U.S. foreign policy had been based not only on territory, but resources, commercial leverage, and strategic advantage. European nations as well. Then Uncle Sam's greatest rival in the Western Hemisphere was Great Britain, and the likeliest spots for confrontation, Mexico and Cuba. Yet, at that time, there was a diplomatic period that today would resemble detente. Europe essentially accepted American domination in the Western Hemisphere. Europe's foreign policy, based on that reality, was that by way of cooperation with the United States, fruitful relations would be maintained. So, when civil war came to this country, British and French foreign officers were more fretful than predatory. Europe wanted stability in the West, stability to continue its own foreign, political, and economic policies. The nation that took diplomatic lead in Europe was Great Britain, and John Bull accepted America's sphere of influence and acted upon it. A few years earlier, in 1850, the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty reached that acknowledgement in one potential hotspot, 
Central America. At question, a potential Isthmian Canal and who would control it. The Clayton-Bulwer Treaty stipulated joint control and did so because Queen Victoria's government wanted easy transit between the Atlantic and Pacific, protection of the West Indies, and an easing of an American expansionism toward Canada. So, as alluded to, Great Britain accepted the balance of power as it existed in the Western Hemisphere. I might add, privately, many Englishmen expected their colonies in the West to eventually and peacefully slide within the American fold. They also thought Cuba, Haiti, and Santo Domingo would follow. However, the Great Disruption or the American question, as they quaintly termed it, put a hold on things. The central issue for British diplomacy during our Civil War was how any action might affect detente. The man charged to maintain that delicate balance was Victoria's Prime Minister Henry John Temple, known simply as Lord Palmerston. Our schoolbook imagery of him a womanizer with ginger sideburns, classic John Bull, a blustering interventionalist, as he put it, there are no better peacekeepers than well-appointed triple-deckers. Yet he was a realist. He wanted a settled international order. He was aware of British power and its limits. He opposed crusades of conquest. Great Britain's involvement in the Crimean War and the Indian Mutiny had shaken English national confidence. Both had killed a lot of English boys and saddled the nation with debt. And so, as he put it, no more Crimeas. In respect to the American question, he was an anti-slavery zealot. However, despite his wishes, the British cabinet, of which he was a member, was so divided that bipartisan support was a must to discuss and settle any diplomatic question. Within his country, radical reformist groups supported American liberties and universal suffrage. Though shaken by American expansionism and industrialism in the 1850s, Uncle Sam's friends were professional and middle-class Englishmen non-conformist, and politically conscious artisans. Across the Channel, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III, and his Second Empire ruled France in authoritarian fashion. The French economy had flourished in the 1850s, but his adventurous foreign policy in the 60s created dissent. On his plate, a disappointing end to war with Austria in 1859, and shaky relations with Great Britain. Both centuries-old antagonists were built on self-interest and mutual suspicion. That heightened Napoleon III's dilemma throughout the American Civil War. How could the French possibly intervene in America's Civil War and not anger Great Britain? And what if intervention damaged the French economy? His country's left was drawn to the Republican-Democratic experiment in the United States. The French court and democracy's enemies favored the Confederacy. In the fledgling new nation, President Jefferson Davis wanted to send a moderate message to the world. He did not want to trumpet ideas of rebellion and radicalism. 
He wanted to calm European fears that the Confederacy had designs on the Caribbean and Central America. Quite honestly, Davis expected quick recognition and hinted that European interest in the West might have a resurgence with the Confederacy's existence. He believed his most effective device for recognition was cotton. After all, it had helped to create the first industrial revolution. He may well have thought, how could possibly Great Britain ignore King Cotton? After all, between 1820 and 1860, that nation received three-quarters of its raw cotton from the southern United States. In 1860, 85%. British finished goods made from cotton constituted one-half of all British exports during the 1850s. The Confederacy's cotton logic went this way. Secession will be peaceful because the North needs cotton to survive. If the Republicans force war, northern middlemen and merchants will revolt. In Europe, a cotton famine will create such an economic disaster, the specter of revolution will fester in the aristocratic regimes found there. Therefore, the powers in Europe will have to intervene to keep cotton shipping lanes open. In the then-Confederate capital, Montgomery, Alabama, in 1861, the head of the Committee on Foreign Relations was Robert Barnwell Rett, who believed parties should be sent to Europe to secure commercial alliances. To entice those who would cooperate would see reduced import duties. For those who did not, an increase. His plan never came to life. What no one in the Confederacy ever figured out was that self-interest tied Europe to northern interests as well. For example, since the War for Independence, the United States exported raw products. Great Britain sent back capital, labor, tools, technology, and investment. And that money became investment for canals, railroads, land, and banking. And beginning in the 1850s, more than just cotton went across the Atlantic. So did grain and foodstuffs from the American prairies. Europe, who anticipated trouble, overstocked its cotton supplies. Another angle, Davis thought Europe would embrace his confederacy as an underdog. The southern image was romantic, conservative, cavalier. And Davis thought those traits would appeal to the aristocratic ruling classes of Europe. Southern leaders hoped frightened European despots would react against northern radicals who, with their clamor for war and for ending slavery, threatened order, threatened the existing strata of European class society. The Confederacy never imagined there would be those in Europe who would turn their back on the South's attempt for independence, for freedom, because there were some four million slaves in the South who never had a chance at the same freedom that white Southerners wanted. Yes, like today, nothing was simple. Indeed, the only constant complexity. Each European nation had its own set of dynamics, its own set of domestic policies that dictated their course of action. History tells us that new nations need allies at the time of their creation. For example, the French aided the American colonies in 1777. In 1859, they had just aided the Italians in their struggle with the Austrian Habsburgs. 
The South's optimism at the beginning and its military advantages were appreciated in Europe, but less appreciated at first was the North's will to fight, to commit, to win. It had superiority in men and materiel, but how could one measure its resolve to mobilize its vast resources to preserve something as intangible as a federal union? True, the Confederacy was sexy, but it labored under rebellion's classic disadvantages. It called itself a nation, but existed without recognition. It had no diplomatic corps, no archives, and no traditions. It could not match the commercial strength of the North. And many European nations throughout their long histories remembered their own civil wars. Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State William Seward may have said it best. A nation has a right and it is its duty to live. From their own bloody past, Russia and Austria agreed and Great Britain and France understood Mr. Lincoln was fortunate to have Seward, who understood the connection between diplomacy and public opinion, who did not want civil war, but when it came, did not want Europe to meddle in America's domestic trouble. Here's who he would work with. Lord Lyon, 41 years of age, Great Britain's minister to Washington City. Still a bachelor, he liked Americans and regretted secession. Still, Acknowledging what had transpired, Lyons knew the Confederacy, for recognition, had to show itself a viable political organization and that the United States government could not preserve the Union. One of Seward's first diplomatic chores was to explain Lincoln's blockade. Lyons told him that if it were a paper blockade, unenforceable, Great Britain might take up the Southern cause. And Seward took great offense to this. A realist, the French minister, Henri Mercier, thought Confederate independence was a fait accompli. He believed the American Republic finished. Seward had no idea what secession unleashed in European designs. For example, when Spain invaded Santo Domingo, the French did nothing. Spain, in turn, for French inaction, raised no protest when France moved into Mexico. Then Great Britain did nothing when Spain promised slavery would not be tolerated in the new Spanish colony. Now let's be honest. Seward was not above playing power chess. Before Fort Sumter, he offered moderates of both North and South a response to Spanish action in Santo Domingo. He even hinted to Southerners the possibility of acquiring Cuba. He hoped those possible alternatives might spur nationalism in the very face of sectionalism. Yet, the minute Fort Sumter was fired upon, Seward moved on. From trying to unite the nation with the possibility of a foreign war to making sure our civil war was indeed just ours. He wrote foreign powers that recognition of the Confederacy would be regarded as a casus belli a cause for war. And indeed, Lincoln's blockade was the first true test for Civil War diplomacy. In England, Victoria sought advice. She and her advisors worried about Canada. She and Canadians feared an independent confederacy. Who then and what would protect them from a vengeful North seeking new territory? 
Indeed, both North and South sent emissaries to Canada, so many that Victoria's colonial office ordered both factions to back off. Victoria's Great Britain was caught in the middle. England traditionally was anti-slavery, but it also held little love for the arrogant expansionist Yankee. The ambivalence showed May 13, 1861, when Victoria proclaimed English neutrality, yet accorded both North and South the rights of belligerence. Both sections were stunned. The North for England's grant of belligerent status to the South, and the South for not receiving outright recognition. The announcement came just before the arrival of Lincoln's ambassador, the grandson of John Adams and the son of John Quincy Adams, Charles Francis Adams Sr. Two Confederate emissaries had arrived on April the 29th. The two, William Lowndes Yancey and Pierre A. Rost, met with Victoria's Foreign Secretary Lord John Russell May the 3rd and made only a delicate allusion to cutting Great Britain's cotton supply. The cold, diminutive Russell promised to put the matter of England's position before the cabinet. No one, north or south, knew that two days before he had ordered reinforcements for the British North American fleet. He learned the next day the second of Lincoln's blockade. Despite Lincoln's insistence that this was a rebellion, Russell and the cabinet accepted the view that the American situation had to be considered a regular war. Russell was quite aware that by then the Confederacy had a constitution, a federal legislature, had raised an army, appropriated $2 million for a navy, and commenced hostility. And the United States had accepted a de facto state of war by declaring a blockade. England played the middle. Belligerency meant the Confederacy could solicit loans, contract for arms, enlist men abroad, send commissioned cruisers to sea, and allow for southern banners and envoys to be recognized as representative of a quasi-political community. In London, Adams had his hands full the minute he arrived. Meeting Russell and acting on Seward's instruction, the first interview between the two was at best stormy. Adams thought Great Britain's initial action as precursor for Confederate recognition. Russell tried to smooth Adams' ruffled feathers. Early on, he presented the New Englander to Victoria, where Adams avoided controversy by wearing stockings and lace instead of Republican black. Still, Adams blasted Russell for conjuring a plot to injure the United States. And yet, Victoria's foreign secretary stuck to his guns. Belligerency was a legal necessity, a sense of reality, and desire that the Civil War would be fought within the rules of modern civilized warfare. Though the first meeting was testy, it did allow both to clear the air, and in doing so, the two forged a begrudging respect for one another. So much so, that from then on, Russell kept Southern envoys at arm's length. Acting on Great Britain's initiative, Napoleon III proclaimed France neutrality June the 10th. The rest of Europe followed suit. Though Great Britain led European diplomacy, France had to be reckoned with. 
Curious, then, that the Union's choice to Napoleon's court was William Lewis Dayton of New Jersey, who spoke no French. He did rather quickly learn something about the French people. He found them tired of war. He found their merchant and manufacturing classes favored non-intervention in 1861. And what with German and Italian efforts at unification, he found France suspicious. France wanted her military and diplomatic power near home. He also thought the French would be friendly to the United States if the Union had no European designs, if the U.S. Navy did not exceed Great Britain's and therefore upset the military balance of power, and if France and the United States could agree to respective interests in each hemisphere. And yet, Napoleon III was a wild card and scented opportunity in Mexico. Lincoln's Secretary of State also schemed. William Seward wanted to keep England and France at odds with one another. He acknowledged the balance of power in Europe and stressed that the same balance of power in the Western Hemisphere should also be maintained. When he learned of both Great Britain and France's proclamations of belligerent status for the Confederacy, he lost it. On Tuesday, May 21, 1861, in Dispatch Number 10, he suggested breaking relations with England if they continued to meet with Confederate representatives. The moment was unique, for one of the few times... The president, Abraham Lincoln, intervened. He eased the tension. Seward still acted on his primary goal, keep Great Britain and France apart. Yet, at the request of both Lyon and Mercier, the two wanted a joint meeting to gain assurances that the United States would respect private property on the high seas. Seward thought this most interesting since this was a flip-flop from the heady days of Napoleon I and maritime issues that led to the War of 1812. Then, it had always been the United States who wanted the rights of neutrals respected. Now, Great Britain and France. Thus far, tension had been constant. But in November of 1861, it rocketed, and the launching pad was the Trent Affair. Jefferson Davis's first emissaries to Europe revealed his ignorance in foreign affairs and continued his penchant for linking loyalty with the Confederacy with suitability for important assignments. The first were not only Yancey and Roast, but Ambrose Dudley Mann. Mann, who had tons of experience in the old Union, was a strong advocate for both Davis and the Confederacy. Roast of Louisiana went on to France where he hoped to tout powerful contacts in his native land. The three received no special instructions and had no authority to conclude any particular agreement with any European power. Quite simply, they were to convey a message of friendship and trade. Their task was daunting, and it is important enough to repeat their confederacy faced classic disadvantages— no tested diplomatic corps, no archives, no tradition. Their diplomatic efforts displeased Jefferson Davis, and in the autumn of 1861, he made the decision to replace them with two former United States senators, James Murray Mason of Virginia and Louisiana's John Slidell. 
Mason was the grandson of George Mason, who ironically, 74 years earlier at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, predicted that the United States would one day pay for the sin of slavery. The grandson, Mason, was a classic Southern aristocratic eccentric, who called himself Jeems. He said chaw for chew and wore a dress coat to breakfast. The South Carolina diarist Mary Chestnut thought him, as she put it, the unlikeliest diplomat in the world, and then added, but then the English were said to like eccentrics. Slidell, a native New Yorker, was a Columbia Law School graduate, and yet, representing Louisiana and the United States Senate, he was without question a fiery champion of secession. Both men were well-known Southern politicians, and in the North, the concern was that their appointment, combined with the porous blockade and recent federal military setbacks, well, their efforts just might spur European interest in the Confederacy. The night of Saturday, October the 12th, 1861, was Bible black, inky, rainy, perfect weather for the ship they were on to run the Union blockade outside of Charleston. Safely reaching Havana, they began the next leg of their journey to London by boarding the mail steamer Trent, a British vessel flying the flag of a neutral. The U.S. consul in Cuba learned of Mason and Slidell's presence and that the two would depart on the British ship Thursday, November the 7th. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, Captain Charles Wilkes and his ship, an armed sloop, the USS San Jacinto, were in Havana Harbor as well. Known as a hothead and often erratic, he and his vessel had arrived from the African coast near the middle of October. On Friday, November the 8th, the Wilkes-led U.S. sloop pursued, overtook, and intercepted the Trent some 300 miles east of Havana in the old Bahama Channel. Acting without orders, Wilkes ordered a shot fired across the Trent's bow, dispatched a boarding party, searched the ship, and found Mason and Slidell. At this point, reports now are hazy. The two were either forcibly removed or courteously escorted back to the Union vessel. But Trent was then allowed to go on its way while the two Confederate envoys were taken to Boston and a prison cell at Fort Warren. Reaction was immediate. In the South, the president of the Confederacy commented that Wilkes' act violated rights of embassy, held sacred even amongst barbarians. In the North, when Wilkes and his crew arrived in Boston to drop off his prisoners, he was proclaimed a national hero at a great banquet honored at Faneuil Hall. The Boston transcript said his action was, as they put it, one of those bold strokes by which the destinies of nations are determined. The Milwaukee Morning Sentinel wrote, Let us stand by the act of Wilkes, though all the guns of Europe frown on us. The New York Times reported, We do not believe the American heart ever thrilled with more genuine delight than it did yesterday at the intelligence of the capture of messengers Slidell and Mason. If we were to search the whole of Rebeldon, 
no person so justly obnoxious to the North could have been found. The Times went on to suggest that a second 4th of July be proclaimed in the captain's honor. The United States House of Representatives gave him an official vote of gratitude and a gold medal. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells wrote to Wilkes that his great public service had the emphatic approval of this department. Attorney General Edward Bates jotted in his diary that there was, as he put it, great and general satisfaction. And then War Secretary Simon Cameron made an appearance before a crowd of jubilant Washingtonians to lead three cheers for Captain Wilkes. Secretary of the Treasury Salomon Chase reportedly went so far as to say that he only regretted that the captain had not gone one step further and seized the British ship. Only Postmaster General Montgomery Blair denounced Wilkes' actions. The 16th president was pleased as well, at first. In a letter to Edward Everett, he said how happy he had been with all the items of news coming in last week. First, the Union taking of Port Royal, South Carolina, and then the capture of Mason and Slidell. But then came reflection. He was joined by many who began to ponder just what had taken place. Perhaps Wilkes had acted hastily, maybe unwisely. Some thought his actions weakened the North's stand on neutral rights. Abolitionists worried their cause against slavery might be wrecked if Great Britain entered the war. As to the direct act of being seized, the two Confederate envoys claimed the right of embassy. They had been removed from the protection of a ship under a neutral flag. Now, to be quite honest, the mail packet did carry Confederate dispatches, contraband of war, and liable to capture, but the Union captain blew it. He removed the men but did not capture the ship, escort it to a port where a prize board might rule whether there was misconduct or not. Then, as to the status of Mason and Slidell themselves, were envoys prizes of war? And even if so, did Wilkes have authority to decide that question on the spot? The proper action would have been to escort the Trent into port, where a prize court would have made a decision. That was part of what was on the mind of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, who was the chairman of the Upper House's Foreign Relations Committee. Running counter to Northern sentiment, he strongly urged for the immediate release of Mason and Slidell in an effort to forestall a break of relations or even war with Great Britain. And his worry was well-founded. On Wednesday, November the 27th, the news reached London, and it hit like a thunderclap. The reaction was one of sheer fury. After putting up with Lincoln's paper blockade, union protective tariffs, and paranoia over Canada, Prime Minister Lord Palmerston exploded before his cabinet. You may stand for this, but damned if I will. The Times in London reported the intelligence spread with wonderful rapidity. Outrage on the British flag. The Southern commissioners forcibly removed from a British mail steamer. London's press called the incident an explicit violation of the laws of nations and demanded reparation and apology. 
War fever seized the nation. In one month, blasted the London Morning Post, we could sweep all the San Jacintos from the sea, blockade the northern ports, and turn to a direct and speedy issue of the war. Of course, rumors fan flames, like one false story of the Trent's male agent stepping between Slidell's young daughter and Union boarding party bayonets with a cry, Back, you poltroons! Benjamin Moran, who worked at the United States Legation in London, noted that the Trent Affair would, as he put it, do more for the Southerners than ten victories, for it touches John Bull's honor and the honor of his flag. The official was certain that nothing but a miracle could stop Palmerston from getting up a war. And in preparation of that possibility, Great Britain's Royal Navy went on alert, and 11,000 British soldiers made sail for Canada. The son of the United States Minister Charles Adams, Henry Adams, wrote, This nation means to make war. Do not doubt it. English reaction needed a face, needed a target, and it became Secretary of State William Seward, who in their mind was anti-English. Times of London mirrored government opinion when it stated, The splenetic mind of Mr. Seward wants a war with Great Britain as a pretext for seizing Canada to make up for the loss of the South. British Foreign Secretary Lord John Russell wrote to the British Minister to the United States, Lord Richard Lyons, The best thing would be if Seward could be turned out and a rational man put in his place. Seward confidentially told British officials that Wilkes had, in his words, acted without any instructions from the government, thereby sparing the United States the embarrassment which might have resulted if the act had been specially directed by us. That stated, Seward waited for the British government to issue its first official statement. An unofficial representative Seward had sent to England, Thurlow Weed, a fellow New Yorker and longtime friend, warned that if the taking of the rebels from under the protection of the British flag was intended and is avowed and maintained, it means war. He went on to say that British newspapers reported steamers in every dockyard were being equipped with troops and supplies, ready to leave as soon as the government so ordered. The press, he said, continued fanning the popular flame by promising to clear the sea of the American Navy in a month, acknowledge the Southern Confederacy, and by breaking the blockade, letting out cotton and letting in British manufacturers. Those who favored secession and separation in Europe, Weed went on, were certainly jubilant. He added collective animosity toward Lincoln's Secretary of State was widespread, how created or why, he did not know. But it had been skillfully worked. As he said, I was told yesterday repeatedly that I ought to write the president demanding your dismissal. Honestly, some of those British fears were not without founding, for Seward, from the get-go, was wary of English designs. He believed England and for that matter, many in Europe would be happy to see such a powerful trade rival as the United States divided and weakened 
and he did not rule out the possibility, if the situation provided itself, of British intervention to make the division permanent. And there were those who well remembered that Seward had made strong statements about breaking relations with Queen Victoria's government if it so much as met with Confederate representatives. Angry by the bombardment he was taking at the hands of the British press, Seward exploded into Lincoln's office one Sunday afternoon, December the 15th. The Republican senator from Illinois, Orville Browning, who was taking tea with Lincoln at the time, listened to the agitated Seward and insisted England would not do such a foolish thing as to declare war. Mr. Lincoln was not so sure. He, as he was wont to do, began a story. He remembered a ferocious-looking bulldog back in his hometown. Neighbors, he recalled, convinced themselves they had nothing to fear. But one wise old sage warned, I know the bulldog will not bite. You know the bulldog will not bite. But does the bulldog know he will not bite? Meanwhile, with war talk in the air and both countries' stock markets tumbling, the American press hounded both Seward and British minister to the United States, Lord Lyons, with questions. Both he and Seward maintained silence until there was an official British response, and that was in the works. The British cabinet met November the 29th and agreed that the United States must disavow Wilkes' actions, the prisoners must be released, and an apology extended. The next day, the British cabinet met again and issued an ultimatum. If the United States refused compliance, Lord Lyons was to withdraw from Washington City. Meanwhile, cooler heads tried to prevail. Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, worked to tone down the British saber-rattling and preferred to believe that Wilkes acted without authorization or at least misunderstood orders. Either way, Seward and Lincoln were given seven days. The British response left the island December the 2nd. The same day, the United States House of Representatives invited Wilkes to their chamber to applaud him. On Thursday, December the 19th, nearly six weeks after the incident, an official response from Her Majesty's government reached Washington City. It declared that the seizure of the envoys from the English ship was, as the document stated, an affront to the national honor, which would be restored only if the prisoners were freed and returned to British protection. In addition, Great Britain demanded a suitable apology for the aggression. If the United States did not agree, within seven days, Lyons and the entire British delegation were to pack up and return to Britain. The British minister to the United States, Lord Lyons, carried the document to Seward's office, and the two discussed the situation, which was growing worse with each day. Before presenting the directive formally, Lyons agreed to leave a copy so that Seward and Lincoln might have some time to consider a response. After the meeting, and in spite of British opinion, Lord Lyons wrote to his foreign minister back in England. He wrote, You will perhaps be surprised to find Mr. Seward on the side of peace. Another who had been working feverishly to restore sanity between the two nations was Lord Lyons' American counterpart in England, the American minister to Great Britain, Charles Adams, Sr. 
Regardless of his lofty lineage, he was not particularly brilliant or imaginative, but he did possess iron restraint and a fantastic ability for making cool decisions under fire. When he was originally informed of the crisis, his son Henry wrote, Not a word escaped, not a nerve twitched. In fact, he received a telegram informing him of the Trent affair while he was the guest of a member of Parliament at his Yorkshire country home. Although he was quite aware of the possible calamities, he did not say a word and remained an appreciative guest throughout the weekend rather than return to London and go under the microscope answering questions before he had any word from his government in Washington City. When he did finally return to the English capital, he worked tirelessly to cool tempers on both sides, and that was difficult since official communications were slow in moving to and from different points east and west of the Atlantic Ocean. It is interesting to note a transatlantic cable had been laid in 1858, but it was out of commission at the time and 14 days were usually required for ocean-going vessels to carry messages one way or the other. 14 days, two weeks. Certainly enough time for a spark that might initiate war, and likewise enough time for the two governments to reflect. Back in Washington City, and immediately after Lyon's visit, the son of the Secretary of State, Fred Seward, remembered that his father shut himself off from all visitors, and as he put it, devoted one entire day to draft a response. In that day of reflection, the practical and astute New Yorker knew the United States could not afford to fight a foreign war while it was in the throes of civil war. He began to see the need for Mason and Slidell's release to allow them passage to England. But overwhelming northern public opinion in support of and praising their capture had to be addressed. Perhaps he recalled in this troubled time one U.S. paper which trumpeted, They can never be given up. The country would never forgive any man who should propose such a surrender. His president, though committed to avoiding war, was struggling with the realization that he might have to submit to British demands, and that, he knew, would be considered humiliating by many in the North. Aware of all these turns and twists, Secretary of State Seward devised an ingenious response. He argued that while Captain Wilkes had acted lawfully in stopping and searching the Trent, the legality of seizing contraband prisoners should have been decided by an American prize court. He wrote that he recognized that he appeared to be taking, as he put it, the British side of the dispute against my own country. But he was really defending and maintaining not an exclusively British interest, but an old, honored, and cherished American cause. The principle of referring disputes like this to a legal tribune had been established some six decades earlier by Secretary of State James Madison, when Great Britain had seized contraband from American ships in similar fashion. To deny the justice of the British claim would be to reverse and forever abandon the very rationale upon which the United States had held proudly many years ago. 
Therefore, Seward reasoned, in defense of principles confessedly American, he proposed that the United States government would cheerfully free the prisoners and turn them over to Lord Lyons. The Secretary of State presented this argument to the President and his fellow cabinet members in an extraordinary session held Christmas morning. Discussion raged for four hours. As Attorney General Edward Bates recorded, there was great reluctance on the part of some of the members of the cabinet, and even the president himself, to accept Seward's arguments. Those that disagreed did so because they feared the great displeasure of our own people, lest they should be accused of timidity, truckling to the power of England. The thought of returning Mason and Slidell was, as he put it, gall and wormwood to chase. Rather than consent to the liberation of these men, he wrote, I would sacrifice everything I possess. Within the cabinet, it was yet again only Postmaster General Montgomery Blair who sided with Seward. But there was an invited guest, an extra person at this tense session. At Lincoln's bequest, Massachusetts Senator and Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Charles Sumner, was there. He reported the reading of two letters from respected English officials that revealed Great Britain did not want war, and that if the present dispute were settled amicably, Britain would not interfere further in the North's problems. His, Seward, and Blair's appeals mustered some support. But unable to reach a conclusion, all decided to meet again the next day to hear Seward with a new draft. Just as the meeting adjourned and all were about to leave to join family to celebrate Christmas, the president turned to his secretary of state and said, Governor Seward, you will go on, of course, preparing your answer, which, as I understand it, will state the reasons why they, the prisoners, ought to be given up. Now, I have a mind to try my hand at stating the reasons why they ought not to be given up, and we will compare the points on each side. Seward finished his response that Christmas night, 26 pages long, and read it to Salmon Chase at his house the next morning before the cabinet meeting. After deep reflection, the Treasury Secretary reasoned that Seward was right. In his diary, Chase wrote, I am consoled by the reflection that while nothing but severest retribution is due to them, the surrender under existing circumstances is but simply doing right. On the 26th of December, Lincoln gathered with his inner circle again. There, around the long oak table on the second floor of the executive mansion, Seward presented his final draft. Though disturbed that Mason and Slidell would be set free, the members were pleased that Seward included nothing concerning an apology. That might have been the wrinkle that conjured up consensus. The new proposed dispatch was approved unanimously. As the meeting broke up, Seward asked Lincoln why he had not presented an argument for the other side. And with a smile, the chief executive replied, I found I could not make an argument that would satisfy my own mind, and that proved to me your ground was the right one. The very next night, the Secretary of State hosted a dinner party. Guests included Kentucky Senator John Crittenden, 
New York Senator Roscoe Conkling and their wives. Also, there were Senators Browning and Sumner. Conversation over dinner was spirited. For example, Crittenden was enraged when Seward pronounced John Brown a hero. Seward's wife, Fanny, was angered when Crittenden criticized Florence Nightingale, stating that he thought it a very unworthy thing for a gentle lady to go into a hospital of wounded men. After dinner, the men retired into the cloakroom where Seward read his Trent dispatch. All praised the secretary's reasoning and handling, although Crittenden swore vehemently. All did agree that the northern public would condemn the decision once the dispatch was made public. Yet, they would all be surprised, for in the end, the northern public greeted the dispatch with relief, not anger. The vast majority realized that a civil conflict at home was quite enough. President Lincoln himself finally realized Seward's diplomatic logic and the necessity of giving up Mason and Slidell, and he was willing to admit that his Secretary of State had pursued the right course all along. And for that matter, England's Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, agreed. As ruler of the world's largest empire, the British traditionally defended the status quo and were reluctant to challenge the legitimacy of any existing government and particularly so since the balance of power in Europe was of late dangerously unstable. Italy was emerging as a unified nation after decades of conflict. In Poland, an insurrection was brewing against the country's czarist Russian masters. Austria and Prussia were on the verge of war, and France and Russia were alarmed at British influence in Greece and the eastern Mediterranean. Since neither the United States or Great Britain wanted war, there was none. Queen Victoria's consort, Prince Albert, prepared a carefully worded response to Seward's dispatch, giving the United States government the opportunity to save face by declaiming Wilkes' actions on the grounds that it was unauthorized, and that is exactly what Lincoln's cabinet did. The English accepted this compromise, and the crises passed. And what of the United States captain that provoked the entire incident? Charles Wilkes' next service was in the Federal James River Flotilla. On July the 16, 1862, he was promoted to Commodore and assigned to duty against blockade runners in the West Indies. Despite his accomplishments, Wilkes never quite mastered his penchant for arrogant and capricious behavior. And this was evident in his running battle with Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. Wells believed that Wilkes, at the age of 64, was too old to receive the rank of Commodore under Act's then-governing promotions. In response, Wilkes sent a scathing letter to Lincoln's father, Neptune. And the controversy between the two ended in Wilkes' court-martial in 1864, where he was found guilty of disobeying orders, insubordination, and other specifications. He was sentenced to public reprimand and suspension for three years. President Lincoln, however, reduced the suspension to one year, and the balance of charges dropped. On July the 25th, 1866, Wilkes was promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral, but on the retired 
list. There are some who speculate that Wilkes' obsessive behavior and harsh code of shipboard discipline shaped Herman Melville's characterization of Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. However, such speculation is not confirmed in the United States Naval Historical Archives. Rear Admiral Wilkes died in Washington City on February 8, 1877. In August 1909, the United States moved his remains to Arlington. His marker says only, He discovered the Antarctic continent, which he had sighted back in 1840. As to the two men whose capture spawned the international incident, on New Year's Day, 1862, James Mason and John Slidell were released from Fort Warren and boarded the HMS Rinaldo to complete passage to their assigned post. Their release frustrated Southern hopes that Mr. Lincoln's Union would have to fight a two-front war. Seward's settlement allowed the North to focus on waging war on the Confederacy, and it did increase President Lincoln and Secretary Seward's prestige. Mason arrived in London and represented the Confederacy until April of 1865. From London, Slidell left for Paris and in February 1862 paid his first visit to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. Both were sent to gain recognition for the Confederacy. And like their Confederacy, both failed. The question of English involvement was settled. But as it turned out, only for a short while, for new crises emerged. English shipbuilders constructing vessels that would be commissioned Confederate raiders or blockade runners. And then there were incidents manufactured by the military picture itself. As to the latter, Anglo-American relations were relatively stable for a, about another eight or nine months. Then, Confederate armies on about a 1,000-mile front under Generals R.E. Lee, Braxton Bragg, and Earl Van Dorn drove north. And once again, the question of English recognition of the Confederacy reared its head. Yet, this time, Confederate reverses at Antietam or Sharpsburg, Maryland and Perryville, Kentucky, stalled whatever momentum that had been gained. And there was one significant development, particularly after the action at Antietam. An executive proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation. A dispatch, if you will, that turned the American Civil War into not only a war to restore the Union, but one that sounded the death knell for the institution of slavery. A proclamation that would, for all practical purposes, keep John Bull and Uncle Sam from going eyeball to eyeball again. There have been more books written on the American Civil War than there have been days since it ended, and the number of topics staggering. However, one aspect of the soldier's experience has been largely overlooked, hidden from families and posterity, an untold story that is as timeless as war itself. Next time we gather, sex 
during the American Civil War. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at RaleighCWRT.org. That's RaleighCWRT.org.